Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Lynn, do you remember when... Uh, probably not. I remember nothing these days, but try me. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> now that we're telling the story of suffrage, I remember how it was to discover women's history in the late 1960s. I'd been a history major in college, but I'd never even had a single woman professor. I knew nothing about women's roles as radicals, as revolutionaries throughout history. Then I started covering and understanding the second wave of feminism, and at last, at last, <laughs> I was learning about Lucretia Mott and Sojourner Truth and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Gradually, they and other women who'd been erased from our history were added to textbooks. Today, we're recognizing even more women of color in the suffrage movement. About time. We'd never been taught about these women. We'd never even seen them. Growing up, nearly all the public statues we saw were of white guys. Yep. Nearly every pigeon in America could park on the arm of a man, usually a white man in a military uniform riding a horse. Right. In Boston, I'd walk past the liberator, William Lloyd Garrison, the only celebrated abolitionist and suffragist on the Commonwealth Mall. I mean, a white guy getting all the credit. So you want some numbers? By the 1990s, there were only 40. Four, zero, freestanding figures of real women outdoors. And of them, only one portrayed an African-American, educator Mary McLeod Bethune. I've wondered what it does to you when you literally don't see yourself in the public sphere. Or when the statues you do see commemorate those who kept you enslaved, like those of Confederate generals in the South. Finally, belatedly, they are being toppled by a nation awakened to their racist symbolism. I'm Lynn Scher. I'm Ellen Goodman. And this is She Votes, a podcast about our battle for the ballot. So statues aren't necessarily set in stone. Hurrah! But fixing history isn't just about taking bad guys down. It's also about elevating good people. We all need someone to look up to. But even today, most of the statues in public squares are idealized and edited. They're too perfect. In real life, people have flaws. Relationships are messy. That's what this episode is about. Because the battle for the ballot came up against some serious conflicts that nearly derailed it. Which brings us to the unique statuary scene we saw in Rochester, New York, Two of our country's greatest activists for social change, Susan B. Anthony and Frederick Douglass. The bronze figures, seated at a little table, reimagined these two old friends and collaborators, close allies whose connections lasted a lifetime. They knew each other well, fought for causes together, respected each other. They also disappointed each other. We met these two giants with Deborah Hughes, who runs the nearby Anthony Museum. Susan B. Anthony Square. And right in the center of the park, the neighbors 
uh, commissioned this work, which is called Let's Have Tea. And it's Susan B. Anthony and Frederick Douglass. They're a little bit larger than life, which the sculptor was intentional about that. They're, they're looking rather thoughtful and engaged. Wouldn't you love to have been at tea with Susan B. Anthony and Frederick Douglass? Because, of course, they were always challenging each other to be their best selves. Uh, I, I see in some of the exchanges between them, Frederick holding Susan and Susan holding Frederick to being having the highest integrity and sticking to their cause. Uh, and Can you remember any of those exchanges? Well, the biggest exchanges are, of course, around the 15th Amendment. The 15th Amendment to the Constitution, 1870. Four brutal years of civil war had just ended. And now the reunited states were trying to reconstruct the government. They were rethinking the meaning of liberty in a society without chattel slavery. I learned late about the struggles of the Reconstruction Amendments. They were life-changing, or were meant to be. The 13th Amendment ended slavery in 1865. Then came the 14th Amendment three years later in 1868. Formerly enslaved people were now citizens. There was one more piece to ensure their inclusion as free Americans, the right to vote. Congress extended that with the 15th Amendment two years later. Historian Betty Collier-Thomas of Temple University explains its importance to those newly freed. It would mean a great deal. They would have a voice. They would have a say in the polity about Black people, about their work, their jobs, education. Suffragists had long linked their own cause to this expansion of citizens' rights. Many had begun as abolitionists themselves, some after being freed from slavery. The two causes were so entwined, they assumed they'd be included in the next liberating steps. Their goal? Universal suffrage. Regardless of race, color, or sex, if you were a citizen, you could participate in government. But that's not what the 15th Amendment promised. The men in Congress said states could not deny citizens the right to vote based on race, color, or previous conditions of servitude. No mention of sex. So freed black men, and no women, were enfranchised. Historian Ann Gordon explained the political reality. What did the Republicans in Congress hope to achieve by giving black men the right to vote? Well, the most cynical view of it is that you've then made the black men loyal to the Republican Party, that they would then be Republicans, and you'd have strengthened the presence of the Republican Party. What was the threat if women got the right to vote at the same time as black men? Well, too many upsets at once, I think, is, is a big one. And, and you don't know how women were going to vote. You, you can't align them into that party system and party loyalty thing. Party politics, Ellen. Sound familiar? And very calculating. The Republicans in Congress, and let's remember they were the good guys then, assumed many white women in the South would vote Democratic. That could reinforce white supremacy and potentially overturn the outcome of the Civil War. Historian Paula Giddings spells it out. Now, you can enfranchise women, and including black women, but enfranchising white women and southern white women is not going to be helpful. <laughs> the political quickly turned emotional. Frederick Douglass, a staunch supporter of women's suffrage from the beginning, accepted the political expedience, agreed to give the vote to black men and no women. Douglass supported the 15th Amendment, 
So did many women, white and black. Susan B. Anthony, like many other suffragists, did not. She felt betrayed by her longtime friend. The split between Douglas and Anthony was echoed by a wider split in the suffrage movement. Sister stood against sister, black against white, black against black, all because the federal government had framed the debate, who should get the right to vote first, freed African-American men or all women? Who mattered more? Think about it. Can you make that distinction in a democracy? And I don't know what I would have done if I had been there. I think it was a horrible choice uh, to have to make, and there was no right answer. That's my position. Suffrage historian Ellen Du Bois still agonizes about the confrontation over the 15th Amendment, which came to a head in 1869, a year before the amendment would be ratified. It was a meeting of the American Equal Rights Association, the group formed by suffragists when they were seeking rights for all citizens. The prominent allies were all there. Frederick Douglass, Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Frances Ellen Watkins Harper. A white male abolitionist had revealed the new endgame when he told the women to stand aside, to wait for their turn. This, he said in the language of the day, is the Negro's hour. Of course, he meant the Negro men's hour. Frederick Douglass backed up the argument at that 1869 meeting. I must say that I do not see how anyone can pretend that there is the same urgency in giving the ballot to women as to the Negro. With us, the matter is a question of life and death, at least in 15 states of the Union. It was a gorgeous spring morning that May, 150 years ago. But inside the hole, as Ellen Dubois notes, the rhetoric boiled over the top. Two celebrated leaders and friends went at each other and at the amendment. Frederick Douglass said, I think, I'm, I'm, I'm not quoting exactly, he says, uh, well, when um, women are, he's speaking about what's happening, I think, in Memphis in the Klan riots. When women, because they are women, are hunted down through the cities of New York and New Orleans, when they are dragged from their houses and hung upon lampposts, when their children are torn from their arms and their brains dashed out upon the pavement, when they are objects of insult and outrage at every turn, when they are in danger of having their homes burnt down over their heads, when their children are not allowed to enter schools, then they will have an urgency to obtain the ballot equal to our own. And then someone from the audience says, but uh, Mr. Douglas, is that not all true of black women? <sighs> yes, yes, yes. It is true of the black woman, but not because she is a woman, but because she is black. For the first time in the suffrage abolition partnership, lines were drawn between race and gender. It was exactly the split that universal suffrage would have prevented. That's what Susan B. Anthony argued that day. It is not a question of precedence between women and black men. Neither has a claim to precedence upon an equal rights platform. But the business of this association is to demand for every man, black or white, and for every woman, black or white, 
that they shall be this instant enfranchised and admitted into the body politic with equal rights and privileges. But universal suffrage was not on the table set by politicians. Betty Collier Thomas. So if you can't have universal suffrage, then you certainly want a black person there who can speak for the race and that's black men. If that's what white men decide, white men who are the powers to be. Why did it have to be either or at that moment in history, do you believe? It didn't, but white men were the rulers. The point is to keep white men in power. That was the point then, and it is the point now. And it completely ignored all women. So Susan and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, along with many others, found themselves arguing against the 15th Amendment, against their friend, Frederick Douglass, and his allies, against an amendment created by white men in Congress, against what they saw as half a loaf. Black women were caught in the middle of this awful choice. Sojourner Truth stood with Anthony and Stanton at first, arguing that without the right to vote, black women would be subject to the dominance of black men. Another notable black suffragist, Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, took the opposite side. She was willing to wait for her own right to vote so that black men could get their rights quickly. Harper supported the 15th Amendment. And so she joins Douglas and said, well, you know, if you can't have both, that black men should have the vote first. Because in America then, and to a great extent now. Um, white Americans don't see me as a woman first. They see me as a black woman. That is the reality. Betty says black women didn't have the luxury of focusing only on their rights as women. Paula Giddings agrees. They're not just thinking about gender. White women just think about gender. Black women are thinking about race and gender. So this is the racial component of it as well, right? What is happening to black women, particularly in the South, is, is, is terrible uh, in terms of exploitation, sexual exploitation, and, and the rest of it. So why would they want to see no one enfranchised of the group? That's not helpful to them. Um, so your, your feeling is that we had to choose at that moment between getting uh, suffrage well, for black men. The, the question is, this is what came down. This is, oh, what, okay. this is what was offered. This was the proposition, right? The proposition wasn't uh, both. The, the proposition was one. So the question then is, are you going to support that or say no? And they have nothing, <laughs> right? And, and after all, after all, you know, the Civil War wasn't fought over women's rights. The Civil War was fought over uh, slavery. So slavery is not going to be over until the franchise is granted. She Votes is proudly brought to you by the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. 
Located in the heart of North Carolina, UNC Greensboro is nationally recognized for its outstanding academic programs, focus on affordability for all students, and an unwavering commitment to equity for all. UNCG was founded as a women's college in 1891 and has since grown to become one of the most diverse institutions in the state. Today, UNC Greensboro is a model for how a university can blend opportunity, excellence, and impact. It's ranked as the number one university in North Carolina for creating social mobility. That's no surprise, given that it was one of the first places to offer women in North Carolina a high-quality education, real professional training, and an opportunity to make an impact and have a voice. In case you hadn't noticed, chronicling the battle for the ballot during the suffrage centennial is our passion, too, here at She Votes. So we are excited to have the support of a university that was founded to serve women and has played a key role in shaping issues of equity in our own time. To learn more about the university, head to uncg.edu. UNC Greensboro. Find your way here. In celebration of the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, the United State of Women is honoring its complicated legacy with a week of action. While women won the right to vote in August of 1920, activists have been fighting for a century to make sure that includes all women. With Michelle Obama's When We All Vote, the United State of Women is hosting the When All Women Vote Week of Action. This week of virtual events and actions will examine the disenfranchisement of black and brown communities and celebrate the women of color who have continued fighting to make the 19th Amendment's promise a reality. USOW is calling on women like you to take action now by pledging to join the Week of Action and stand in solidarity with the full protection of voting rights for all women. Take the pledge at bit.ly slash when all women vote. Let's go back to that meeting hall in 1869. It was filled with longtime allies, more than a thousand abolitionists and suffragists, black and white, men and women. They'd worked together for more than a decade to abolish slavery, to expand the electorate, to make democracy more representative. And now, gathered in that hall, they found themselves in a battle royal over the proposed 15th Amendment. The suffragist's dear friend, Frederick Douglass, supported it, claiming the right to vote for black men, no women. Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton were livid. After organizing and campaigning and lobbying for the right to vote for all citizens, they felt cut out. They saw their coalition shattered. Their leadership had made them national celebrities, their every word quoted in the papers, including these. Historian Paula Giddings recalls the remarks made by Stanton. There's one which uh, I, I think is, is so revealing. So long as he, talking about the black man, was lowest in the scale of being, we were willing to press his claims. But now, as a celestial gate to civil rights is slowly moving on its hinges, 
it becomes a serious question whether we had better stand aside and see Sambo walk into the kingdom first. Another, the Republicans have with one hand lifted up two million black men and crowned them with the honor and dignity of citizenship. With the other, they have dethroned 15 million white women, their own mothers and sisters, their own wives and daughters, and cast them under the heels of the lowest orders of manhood. Not only racist, but it was elitist. It was anti-foreign, anti-immigrant. It was really inexcusable. Susan B. Anthony said something equally inexcusable. If you will not give the whole loaf of justice to the entire people, she said, then give it first to women, to the most intelligent and capable portion of the women at least, because in the present state of government, it is intelligence, it is morality, which is needed. Wow. Listen, one can understand the sense of betrayal and the anger of Anthony and Stanton and the women who they represented. Paula Giddings says Congress shares the blame for helping divide what was once a united movement. Because they had been working together for universal suffrage and universal rights. And after a vision when there was this imagination of after Reconstruction of these interests being together of of women's rights and, and racial and race rights. And then for the Republican Party to step in and say, you know, black men should have the vote and not women. Uh, one can understand the, the sense of betrayal about that. But then the next step that's taken, the kind of racist invectives is outrageous. She's using horrible language, but I don't think it's true that she doesn't think black women should vote. I don't think the evidence is there. Ann Gordon, who edited the definitive six-volume edition of Stanton and Anthony's papers, says the issue is complex. Elizabeth Cady Stanton did oppose the 15th Amendment. Her goal was more inclusive. She is a person who pushed very hard to try to get the Congress to take seriously this idea of the citizen is the voter. And she believed that voting rights should be protected by the federal government and guaranteed by the federal government. And she's pushing for something that's a grand vision of, of uh, voting equality. And what about Susan B. Anthony? Lynn, you've spent a lot of years researching and writing about her. How do you explain her words and the association of both women with an avowed white supremacist? It's cast a shadow on their reputations. What she said at that meeting can't be ignored. I look at her whole life, which was devoted to seeking freedom and justice and voting rights for everyone. And I'm troubled that some see only these missteps. Remember that story Ellen Du Bois told us about a fellow historian who asked her class during an exam who was Elizabeth Cady Stanton? And the student wrote, Elizabeth Cady Stanton was a famous racist. Uh, that, that's all that's left of her. Is that fair? I think she was one of the great feminist intellectuals of American history. I'm reminded of author Ta-Nehisi Coates, who said he thought of Stanton and Anthony as, quote, misstepping, but always agitating, always expanding. And I feel a strong kinship, he said. I don't need my personal pantheon to be clean. 
but I need it to be filled with warriors. I like that, Ellen. Warriors, not saints. I mean, sainthood is so hard to achieve. Can't you argue that their good friend, another warrior, Mr. Douglas, abandoned Stanton and Anthony, his longtime colleagues, over the 15th? How did Paula Giddings put it? When Frederick Douglass said, you know, look, this is the Negro's hour, uh, and it's really important that black men become enfranchised, even though he could be a little, little bit more refined around the intersectional <laughs> discourse. But, you know, but it's understandable is what he's talking about. Perfection. Kind of hard, even in our heroes. Douglas really did believe that women should have the vote. Stanton and Anthony really did work for universal suffrage. Is it fair to look at bad moments in a person's career as their defining moments? Now, the suffrage movement was messy. Susan and Fred resumed their friendship almost immediately. It may have been fraught, but it lasted two lifetimes. He ends up coming to suffrage meetings regularly um, the rest of his life. And Susan B. Anthony certainly regards him, he, she may find him irritating sometimes, she knows she's disagreed with him, but she happens to be in Washington when he dies, he dies within hours of leaving a room where she'd been, and she goes to great lengths to make sure that his role in the women's movement is honored. The Douglas family even asked Susan to speak at his funeral. But the bitter fight over the 15th Amendment triggered an organizational split in the movement. Susan, Elizabeth, and others walked out of that 1869 meeting and formed the National Women's Suffrage Association. Lucy Stone, Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, and others became the American Women's Suffrage Association. They wouldn't get back together for another 20 years. And the 15th Amendment that caused so much dissension? It passed but proved to be deeply flawed. It would have been really nice if we all held hands and skipped into the sunset, but uh, it wasn't politically feasible to do this any other way. And in fact, you know, the 15th Amendment, uh, there was still so much work to do in the 15th Amendment. It, it said nothing about voting requirements to have the uh, literacy test and all those other kinds of things that, that, that disenfranchise black people. And of course, as we see, black men become disenfranchised almost immediately. She was talking about the Jim Crow era, when Southern states used education, income, intimidation, you name it, to prevent African-American men from voting. Exactly. Because of the way Congress worded the 15th Amendment, states retained control over who votes. Southern states grabbed the chance to support white supremacy by imposing endless barriers to black voters. So another nearly a century of racial struggle, and still no votes for women. This story of the split in deep friendships is really a moment to think about our heroes and their flaws. It's what we're struggling with today when we see the great moral flaws of some of our leaders, including George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, President Kennedy was the saint on every Irish mother's wall in Boston, but also a philanderer. Even Martin Luther King's personal life didn't always live up to his political ideals. And look at Woodrow Wilson, his name removed from an institute at Princeton because he supported segregation. Uh, Ellen, it's worth noting he was not dethroned for his reluctance to support woman suffrage. 
many of these people who we admired were such mixed moral figures. It's not always clear when you should cancel a hero and remove him or her from the pantheon. What we can learn is that the story of social change is filled with these questions and these complex biographies. There isn't a hero on any one of these marble pedestals without flaws. Looking at the thoughtful statues of Susan B. Anthony and Frederick Douglass in Rochester, I realized how much they had in common and how much of a contribution their fraught friendship made. Deborah Hughes agrees. Well, right now, I think that they're talking about, is this democracy thing actually going to work or not? Uh, it, we're, we're at the same critical moment that they saw, which they saw a couple times in their lifetime. This whole discussion of, is the point to be in government, to be doing good for the whole, or is it to be protecting the rights of individuals so that they can gain wealth? Uh, it's the same argument. It, it's the Federalist argument. For you, how does that connect to the suffrage movement? Well, to me... The point of the suffrage movement isn't getting women the right to vote. The point of the suffrage movement is of the people, by the people, for all the people. It's, it's at the very core of are we going to be a, a better union or a better nation than was even envisioned by the, the forefathers, as we sometimes refer to them. To me, it's this vision. It, it's this crazy idea that you can have government that will protect the few. Uh, but do the few stick together? If you thought abolitionists were complicated, wait till you hear about women, all women. Sisterhood is not always powerful. Next time on She Votes. She Votes is produced by Maddie Foley, Edie Allard, and the team at Wonder Media Network. To learn more about our battle for the ballot, you can follow us on Twitter at WMN Media, on Instagram at WMN.media, or on our website, SheVotesPodcast.com. Special thanks to Christine Baranski and Colin Howard. Thank you for listening. What does it mean to live in a democracy? The Democracy Works podcast examines a different aspect of that question every week. Sometimes it's a big picture issue like neoliberalism or demagoguery, and others it's a more day-to-day like voting by mail or the census. Each episode is one part education and one part inspiration about how we can all come together to make democracy work. Recent guests include Christina Wolbrecht, author of A Century of Votes for Women, and Sibyl Raman, president of Demos. The show is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Listen and subscribe to Democracy Works wherever you listen to podcasts.